Thank you, Don, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Please take a moment. We'll pray together and then consider this text. Our theme this morning is around uh, living into the peace of God as a reality in our lives. So please uh, join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that we have this privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice, and we uh, pray and ask that your spirit would teach us now, Father, and that we'd be responsive as we come uh, to this moment at the end of remembering you and your sacrifice and the provision you've made for us to be people of peace. I pray that uh, these words would uh, find receptivity in our souls in order that we might in practice be people of peace, and we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So a team of UCLA researchers uh, did a survey of more than 200,000, 200,000 incoming freshmen, students across the country, and reported all-time lows in overall mental health and emotional st stability. And this news, of course, uh, sent the media into a kind of a headlong rush of reporting. ABC News ran footage of harried-looking college students rushing around campus. Time Magazine, title of the article, Why Are College Students Reporting Record High Levels of Stress? New York Times story, uh, the same report, vaulted to the top of the paper's most emailed list. And in addition to that, uh, I was watching the news just last night and saw a story about self-mutilation among teenage girls being dramatically on the rise. And uh, I show often a video by the uh, Stanford psychology teacher, Philip Zimbardo, entitled The Demise of Guys, where he gives statistical evidence that men are melting down in our culture and withdrawing. So women are harming themselves, men are disengaging, all of them are stressed, welcome to college. There you go. And then the question kind of becomes on the table this morning, like, what do we do with this? And I will observe at the outset, this is part of the vast appeal of Eastern religion, honestly. If you run Green Lake at uh, any time around 7 a.m. and you end up over by the pool, you see a group of people doing Tai Chi. How many have seen this? Yeah. So when I, when I run, it's, th it's that early, and there's people doing Tai Chi there, and you know this, right? I don't know what they do, but it's something like this. <laughs> and uh, meditation, hugely popular in our, in our city. And of course, I understand it. People are stressed out, and there's medical evidence that both Tai Chi and meditation lower your blood pressure, lower your heart rate, and work. People are stressed, and they're dealing with it, and it's understandable. Here's what's ironic. People are flocking to answers from the East in spite of the fact that Jesus is identified in Isaiah chapter 9. His name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of... Peace. So Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and people are you know, driving by right now, ignoring Christianity in search of peace. Well, it's kind of understandable. Here's another article I read. One young man says this, I'm 30 years old, and I'm struggling to find sanity between Christian schools, homeschooling, Christian conferences, Christian camps, and different churches in different cities. I am a psychological, emotional, spiritual mess. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's not a very good testimony of how effective the church is doing at helping people live into peace. And I want to suggest to you that this person is not alone. Many people involved in institutional faith, such as we who are gathered here this morning are, are filled with anxiety. I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not enough. And that creates a sense of anxiety. Ironically, in the, we gather in the name of the one who he himself, Colossians 3, is our peace. So this morning what we need to do is hold up this dissonance between the reality of anxiety so present and real among Christ's followers and, and, and his invitation for us to live in a state of profound peace. And we do that by looking at Philippians 4, three questions. What's the problem? What are the practices that address it? And what, uh, what's the promised fruit of those practices? And the context, of course, is Paul's letter, Philippians, uh, the fourth chapter, he's drawing uh, the letter to a conclusion in chapter four. And uh, he says, therefore, verse one, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. So as he comes to a conclusion, Paul is making the observation that there are always forces intent on knocking us over. There's always forces uh, intent on dissuading us from displaying the character of Jesus, particularly the peace of Christ. So there are forces in our lives, and, and we're told to stand firm. Some of the forces are subtle, causing us to drift away from Jesus. Some of the forces are like an avalanche, you know, hitting us, and then, you know, pushing us away. Materialism, for example, and the cares of commuting and upward mobility and interest rates and investments, those sometimes cause us to drift away. Cancer, infidelity, the death of a child, Bam, it's an avalanche, and that, that just overwhelms us. And we're told here, regardless of whether it's an avalanche or a strong current, stand firm, resist drifting away from peace. So that's kind of the backdrop here. And then uh, he gets very practical with these three questions. And the first question is, what's the problem? And the problem is articulated in verse 6. He says, be anxious for nothing. So the problem, anxiety. That's the problem we're looking at this morning. Crazy word, anxiety. In the Greek language, the word is merimnao. And what it means is to be divided. So the point here is to say, we're at our best when everything we do springs from one source. When, when we're preoccupied with one goal and, and, and we're pursuing that goal out from one source that is providing us wisdom and strength and, and life and choice-making capacity and energy and all that stuff. So one goal from one source. Does that make sense? And, and, and so this is the goal, and Jesus explicitly points to this when he speaks in uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, about the story of Mary and Martha. Do you guys know that story? Mary and Martha? Uh, and, and the story is about Jesus' his teaching. And so, you know, here's Mary and here's Martha, and... Uh, you know, Mary is sitting and listening to Jesus. She's just sitting and listening. Martha is, you know, getting coffee and, you know, heating up the muffins and, you know, filling people's cups and stuff like that. And, and Martha's actually a little annoyed with Mary because Mary's just sitting there. And then I think Martha's probably expecting Jesus to a little bit rebuke Mary, right? And say, hey, Mary, what are you sitting there for? Get up and do something. Like, like Martha. And instead, Jesus does what to us in this room, highly productive, educated people, is unthinkable. He praises Mary and critiques Martha. And so here's Martha, she's serving. 
What does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're preoccupied with many things. Look at Mary. She's awesome. Be, be preoccupied with one thing. Uh, now, my wife should have been named Martha because she is that, right? Like she's always serving, always working, always making sure everything's done. And, and so people like my wife don't like this story. And every time we read the story, she says, I, oh, just, why did Jesus do that, right? Why is he pra- he's praising the wrong person, right? Here's the thing. What Jesus is saying, remember? He said, um, you're preoccupied. Here's the critique. Not that you're doing many things. He says, you're preoccupied with many things. And, and Martha is preoccupied with what? One thing. In other words, hear me, it's so important. The problem isn't the doing. The problem is the source. Does this make sense? Like if I have one source then I can be very active at Microsoft, at an architectural firm, at Amazon, wherever I am. I'd be very active, but the one source that's driving me, the result of working out of one source is peace. When I have many preoccupations, when I'm, when I'm drawing on many sources to animate, to energize, to, to make my choices, the many sources, when I'm preoccupied with many things, the result, anxiety. So, so uh, the reality is most of us are divided. That's the deal. Our actions flow out from Christ sometimes and sometimes flow out of our own ambitions. True? That's the problem. Uh, our, our concerns sometimes are about being faithful citizens of heaven and other times our concerns are about interest rates and cancer and politics and the threat of thermonuclear war. Like we have two, like we have two things, kingdom of heaven, uh, kingdom of this earth, uh, Christ's strength, my strength. And the fact is the anxiety is a reality in our lives because we're divided. And so for this reason... It, Jesus says in Matthew 6, it's a default mode for us to worry. We, we worry. Like what will we, but Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? In other words, he, he, Jesus is saying, look, now that you have the, like the source of all the life in the universe resident within you, you, you don't have to worry anymore about your livelihood, about, about interest rates, about your house burning down, about your health I'm with you. That's all you need. One source. That's, that's supposed to be liberating, right? So this last week, up at the pass, uh, where I live, so call me pass, the, uh, the whole water system for the whole area uh, collapsed. It was a leak. And so the power had gone out, and then when the power came back on, within a half hour, we had an email saying, don't drink the water that's coming out of your pipes. It's polluted, Right? And, and so what happens is the pipe is broken, and when the pipe is broken, they wrote in the email, there's other water is creeping in to the pipe. And the water could be, of course, you know, polluted, so don't drink the water. And now I am a dual citizen. I'm up there maybe half the time or so. So I got up there late Tuesday night, and I'd for, totally forgotten about this, this thing, this ban on drinking out of the tap. And I, I walk into the living room, and there's company... And, and I, I'm tired, you know, long day, and I just, and I'm thirsty, so I go straight to the tap, you know, open it up, and everybody's talking, and then I'm drinking this, 
and then the table sees me, and they go, put that down! Like it was like a, an emergency or something, you know? And I, and I go, what, what, what? Oh, that's right. Oh, this could, be, this could kill me. Yeah, oh, that's right. Okay, good idea. Put it down. Because, like, I don't want water coming from two sources. I don't want water coming from, like, this ground spring, which, by the way, at the past is some of the purest water in the country, and, you know, polluted animal whatever. I don't want that. I want pure water. I want, in other words, what I want? One source. This is what Paul is saying. Like, if, if, you're, if everything you're doing flows from one source toward one end, then you don't have any worries about your career, about your health, about anything. I mean, you'll, there, there's still things to do, but, but you're not now motivated by the sense that you have to be in control because you're not in control anyway. And so now you've, uh, you've you know, jettisoned the illusion of control and you're living out from one source. What does God want from me? Toward one end, can I display the character of Christ? That's a good life. So he says here, hey, anxiety, is a, it's, a, it's a real thing, anxiety. And, and don't draw from two sources, like Christ plus your own autonomy. When you try and do that, you're going to be anxious because you're going to be divided. Okay, but now here's the thing. I can say that. Don't be anxious. Whatever. We leave, we're anxious. Here's why. Paul embeds this problem of anxiety in a prescription that would lead to peace. And so there's things that you actually have to do, the fruit of which then will lead to uh, the banishment of anxiety or the reality of peace. So, so the que se first question was the problem, it's anxiety. Second question, what are the practices that address the problem? There are four, and they're not in your, the four are not in your notes. I'm going to give them to you now and then unpack them. Four things that address the problem. Rejoice in the Lord, pray with thanksgiving, pray with requests, and dwell in the right space. So four very practical things that God says to do. Thing number one, rejoice in the Lord. This is what Paul says here. Uh, verse four, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say it, rejoice. By the way, this is a theme to the whole book. Back in chapter one, remember what Paul said? He said, hey, I want you to know that I'm in prison, you know, unjustly accused, tossed around between, you know, the Roman system and, and the legal system of Judaism, and, and then, you know, a ship, and then shipwrecked, and I, you know, I ended up here in Rome in prison, and by the way, people outside prison now have hijacked my ministry and are maligning my character. And then this is what he says. Here's just kind of his summary statement. In this, I rejoice because God isn't limited by my circumstances in any way. In fact, my circumstances have actually led uh, to the furtherance of the gospel. It's a, th a theme we'll unpack actually a bit next week. But he says, hey, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about being in prison. I, I, in fact, I rejoice because here's the thing. This rejoicing is embedded in Paul's profound experience, which is this, I, I can't choose my circumstances. They are beyond my control. Yeah, I, I think I live in an illusion of control. You know, with enough education, I can get this kind of a job, whatever. You have a, you have a measure of control, but all of us in the room have a measure of, we're not in control. Your company gets bought, you know, gets bought by a bigger company, and then you're no longer needed. Or or uh, uh, the, a, a gene mutates, and then it's cancer. It could be anything, but we have a limited control. Paul says, I can't actually control my circumstances. I can control how I react, and here, here's how Paul reacts. He always reacts the same way. He says, 
whatever my circumstance is, I know it can, it can lead to more of Christ being seen in me. That's the deal. Romans 8, 28, what does it say? Some of you know this. Hey, God causes all things to, to, to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. God. Oh, and then we kind of misuse this verse. Oh, I got a wreck. Hey, Romans 8, 28, you know? Yeah, great, wreck, good. No, no, understand here that the good that, that God can use any circumstance to work toward, the good is this, more of Christ being revealed in you. So now, that, now Romans 8, 28 made sense to me anyway, because here's what Paul's saying. Look, whatever circumstance comes into my life, unwanted, unsought, God is never limited. Cancer, God can use it for more of Christ to be seen. Infidelity, God can use it. My own failure, God can use it. My success, God can use it. There isn't a single circumstance that cannot, as I, as I take that circumstance to God, result in more of Christ being seen. This is what Paul is saying in, 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 in Romans chapter 8. He says, if you love God, if you turn to God, bring a circumstance to God, God will use the circumstance to cause more of Christ to be seen so that Paul is able to say, yeah, I'm in prison, whatever, in this I rejoice. Why? Because God's not limited by circumstances. Habakkuk said the same thing in in the Old Testament, when the city of Jerusalem is imploding, you know, conquered by the Babylonians, and Habakkuk's conclusion, chapter 3, verse 18 of that beautiful little book in the Old Testament, hey, even if the fig tree never blooms again, even if the grape never has another, uh, the grapevine never has another grape on it, I will rejoice. Why? God is not limited by the outward circumstances. God can be seen in your life right now today. And for this, that's a cause for joy. So rejoice in this reality that you are invited to a life without any contingencies and that'll free you from worry. No contingency. I mean, I don't have to worry about anything because any circumstance God can use. So that's A. B, pray with thanksgiving. Like what are the practices? First one, rejoice in the Lord. Second one, pray with thanksgiving. So our invitation to pray with thanksgiving is rooted in this. Like, when I ask God to do something in the present or in the future, my asking should be rooted in a confidence that comes from remembering the past. And so when Paul says pray with thanksgiving, what he's really saying is, hey, give thanks for what God has already done and then ask God for things in the future. So, so like the starting of our prayers are, are, are thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for the things that you did yesterday. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Israel is about to enter into this new promised land, here's what God says. He says it positively and negatively. Positively, he says, hey, remember what I did for you all through the wilderness. Did your shoes ever wear out? Oh, by the way, no. And uh, did, you, did you ever lack bread? No, every morning, weird. It's just on the ground. We picked it up. We were ever like were you ever thirsty? And there was no water. As a matter of fact, no. You know that's right. Oh yeah, there's water too. Did you ever lack guidance? Oh no. Come to think of it, there was a cloud in the daytime and there was a fire at night. I guess I guess when you really stop and think about it, God's been there the whole time. Yeah, says God. So stop and think about it. Right. So that's a, that's remember. And then God, in in God's sense of humor, in Deuteronomy eight thirty two eight and thirty two. 
I love that God's, when God states stuff in the positive and the negative. He says, hey, remember, and then he says, don't forget. Don't you love that? Like, we, some of us need to hear the negative, the stick, others the carrot, whatever. The, the point's the same. Always uh, ask for the future after you have fortified your confidence that God's alive and at work. And, and just practically, we do this a couple of ways. First, uh, we have a church calendar, don't we? So uh, I know Beth is quite low church, like no collar, etc. However, uh, you know, we have an Ash Wednesday service. We have a Good Friday service. We have Advent stuff. We, we have uh, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. We remember what God has done. So that's when we gather, we remember. In a moment, we will remember right here at the, at the Lord's table. So that's a remembering. But also, we're invited, each one of us, to remember individually how God has been faithful in our lives. And, and so... When I am praying for anything, it's been so helpful for me to be praying regarding the future with this active sense of remembering the past. Oh, yeah, God's been with me. When, when I was adopted, I was chosen in a family with a faith heritage. And then, you know, ended up at this crazy camp where I heard this British speaker and his book changed my life. And then, and then you know, I just, oh, and then the cute blonde who invited me to the ski retreat where I changed my major and said, I want to know God, pray in the snow. Like, I didn't orchestrate any of it. Like, I feel like this. You know, God's, when I think about it, I'm like this. God has had his hand on me all the time. And when I run from God, oh, I thought I was running, and God's there wherever I'm going. Oh, I, yeah, oh, I mean, I can see it. God's been faithful. So remember and give thanks for God's faithfulness in the past so that then you can pray with requests. This is the text again. Uh, in everything with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is God's invitation for you and I to begin to behave more like children and ask. Uh, when my kids were young, we, if we go to a Mariner game or whatever, uh, they would just, without hesitation, say, hey, it's time for some Dippin' Dots. <laughs> Which is code for, I want your money, right? <laughs> and there was no repayment plan, and there was no, you know, kind of doubt that dad would come through. There was just, it was just a, just a request. This is what kids do. Kids request. And then when, my, you know, when my son broke his elbow, of course, he needs comfort. So what does he do? He runs into his mother's arms, which is appropriate, because I was, you know... Whatever, that's a different sermon. <laughs> but the point is, like, when children have needs, immediately they go. They're not afraid to be needy. We are. Especially we are. You know, educated, upwardly mobile, money in the bank. Yeah, oh yeah, we got to take care of ourselves. That's what, that's what we learn as we grow older, we got to take care of ourselves. And oh, and I, and I hear this sometimes, both pastorally and with friends, I'm trying to hold it all together. Yeah, that's your job, right? No, it's not. Like children, we got to learn to ask. Now I'm gonna, to illustrate this, I'm going to read a story that is one of my favorite stories. And I'm going to warn you, when, as you listen, there's going to be a, like a skeptical cynic in you wanting to be dismissive. But just try and listen 
and hear what God is saying to you uh, through this story. This is a, I'm, I'm reading the story because uh, it, it, these are the words of the woman who experienced it. So I, I don't, I normally try to paraphrase stuff, but you need to hear the story. This is Helen Roosevelt, a missionary to Africa. So I'll just read. One night in Central Africa, I had worked hard to help a mother in labor, but in spite of all we did, she died leaving us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter who'd lost her mother. Uh, we'd have difficulty keeping the baby alive because we had no incubator, no electricity to run an incubator, no special feeding facilities. And even though we lived on the equator, the nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts because they lived at altitude. Student midwife went for the box we had for such babies, for cotton and, and wool that the baby would be wrapped in. And another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. But she came back in distress to tell me that in filling the hot water bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates, and it's our last hot water bottle, she cried. <laughs> All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job keeps the baby warm. So now you have a dead mother, a, sister, a, a, a two-year-old who's lost her mom, and a baby fighting for its life. The following noon, this is the, the lady, Helen, continues to tell the story, the volume and I went to have prayers with the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about and told them about the tiny baby and explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby could die easily if it got chilled. And I told them about the two-year-old uh, who was crying because her mother had died. And then it's prayer time. So during the prayer time, a 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prays with... This is how Ruth always prays. Please, God... Send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead. Send it this afternoon. And now Helen writes, I gasped at the audacity of her prayer. And she added, and while you're at it, God, send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you love her. As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I did not believe that God would do this. Oh, yes, I'm a missionary. I know God can do everything. The Bible says so. But there are limits, right? This is her writing. The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland, and I'd lived in Africa for four years and never received a single parcel. Anyway, if someone did send a parcel, who would put a hot water bottle in? We live on the equator. So, uh, she's kind of mortified, this little girl has prayed. And then she continues her story. Halfway through the afternoon while I was teaching in the nurse's training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. Of course, you guys know now where this story is going. I felt tears prickling my eyes. I couldn't open the parcel alone, so I sent for the children. Editorial comment, I would never have sent for the children. I would have opened it first to make sure there was a happy ending, and then I would have sent for the ch children. But anyway, Helen sends for the children. For whatever reason, there's a picture, 40 kids excited this package. So together we pulled off the string. I didn't think I'd try the second service. I already read it at eight. <laughs> We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it. Excitement. There were some knitted jerseys. I handed them out to the kids. 
Then bandages for leprosy patients, and the children begin to look bored. Then a box of raisins. Okay. And then I put my hand in, and I felt it. Are you kidding me? A brand new hot water bottle. I cried. I didn't have the faith to ask God to send it. I hadn't truly believed he would. Ruth, the 10-year-old, was in the front row, and she rushed forward. She rushed forward, and she said, well, there's got to be a dolly in there, too. (laughs) And she just started rummaging around in the box, and she pulls out a small doll, and she says, can I go and give the doll to the little girl whose mom died so that she can know Jesus loves her? The parcel left five months earlier and arrived on that day. It was packed by my former Sunday school class. And later I learned that uh, she had no idea why she put a hot water bottle in the box. She just felt led to. And it will come to pass, writes Helen, quoting Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. Now, here's why I tell you that this is a kind of problematic story. I hear this all the time. When I, when I tell stories like this, when I tell stories of answered prayer, people say, oh, yeah, well, whatever. You've got to talk about the times God doesn't answer prayer. Oh, can I just say to you, we're really good at that already. Most of us are. Why? We're educated, rational, scientists, materialists, and we understand that we live in a world of cause and effect, and, and cells mutate, and they don't, get, they don't heal themselves. I get it. A- and I get this too. Jesus, you have not because you ask not. So go ahead, ask. I asked for my dad to be healed. He wasn't. That's not a reason to not ask again tomorrow when someone's sick. Ask, ask, ask. Because in the asking, A, you're transformed. B, the promise of God becomes real. The peace of God becomes part of your life because you've literally put something in God's hands. And then you can receive whatever the answer is. We have not because we ask not. And if I could change anything at Bethany Community Church, it would be this. And my own heart, that we pray more, that we ask more, that we ask boldly, that we utilize the prayer team Because every time you come up and you talk to somebody on this prayer team at Bethany, you're publicly saying this, I believe God answers prayer, and I'm asking. So I'm asking you today to answer this question. What do you want to see God do? What do you want? (laughs) Ask. Ask in the prayer book. Ask with the prayer team. Ask. If we're a community of asking, God's God's an an answering God. Then, fourth, because we got to go on, dwell in the right space. Like the end of this little passage is this. Whatever's lovely, whatever's of good reputation, if there's anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The key word is dwell because it means let your mind be at home among things that are good and noble and worthy. Paul is not saying disengage from culture. Paul was, in, Paul was totally in touch with his culture. He read Greek poetry. He looked at all those idols on, on Mars Hill. Uh, it, it wasn't a pretty culture that Paul knew quite well. He understood slavery, no rights for immigrants, no rights for women, insecure leaders demanding loyalty, a wealthy few impoverished masses, difficult days. He got it. But though he was in touch with culture, uh, like his, his mental homepage 
was that which edifies. So Paul, I would picture him if he were alive today, he'd be holding a New York Times in one hand and the Bible in the other. Culture, yeah. But my homepage, like where does your mind go when it goes, when it has nowhere else to go? Like when you're stuck in traffic on I-5, and you are, I know it, like when you're there, where does your mind go? St oh, stupid traffic. Or does, can your mind go to that verse you're meditating on? Psalm 23.1, the, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or rejoice in the Lord always, or he himself is our peace, or what, whatever it is. Like, do you have a homepage? What's on it? If it's your to-do list, you're anxious. If it's, if it's politics, you're really anxious. If, if, it's, if it's what God is saying to you, then there's a promise of peace. Paul's invitation, meditate on that which is life-giving. For me, that means literally meditating, which we will do collectively more in our Lenten series. And it means, for me as well, it means um, that receiving stuff that edifies, like nature, music, reading, film, conversation that edifies, that builds me up. So we need to look at our homepage. Then, finally, in closing, the promise of all this, the promised fruit is this, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. It's a beautiful word. It literally, it says the peace of God will become a fortress around your heart. And here's why I love this. Because the east says this, you, you, oh, you want peace? Then withdraw. Like, just pull away from everything, withdraw from all sources of conflict, meditate in order to empty your mind. It's all about, it's all about withdrawal. The West says, oh, you want peace? Here's how you have peace. Get powerful. They got a gun? Get a bigger gun. Then you'll sleep well at night. If you have enough wealth, enough power, nobody can t uh, touch you. But in the Western model, you need to be rich enough, healthy enough, connected enough, armed enough, insured enough. And here's the problem, never enough. Never enough. So the gospel comes along and says to, to the East, don't empty your mind, fill it. And says to the West, uh, don't build walls, tear them down. Because, why? Because here's the third way. The fruit of rejoicing praying with thanksgiving and requesting and having a homepage filled with truth, like the byproduct of that is the peace of God building a fort around your heart like nothing gets in. So they become like Jesus then, asleep in the boat when there's this massive storm. I want to be one of those guys who's asleep in the boat. And, and I'll just say in closing, when you have that peace... When you have that peace, you're a walking advertisement for the validity of the gospel because I, the world is crazy and you have peace. I learned this in 1978. I was a student in Seattle Pacific. I went to uh, Buck Creek to go to a little retreat with some college students from a different church. I, was, I went to Bethany, so I was, a, I was a guest at this retreat, and it was something happened that was crazy. We're sledding the first night by torchlight, and then we come in, and we were sitting around with hot chocolate, and a girl says, hey, can we pray? I lost my contact lens in the snow. And, and this is like back in the day of hard contact lenses uh, that are like two or $300 each. And she says, and I just don't have enough money. I wanna, I'm praying that we'll find it. And I'm like this. 
these people are insane. <laughs> Who prays to find a contact lens in the snow? That just, that will never happen. That will ne Do you know where you lost it? Oh, no, you know, somewhere out there. <laughs> like, not even necessarily on the hill. Just, oh, you know, it's outside. I know that much. Oh, well, okay. I guess God can work with that. You know, let's pray. So, picture 15 college students praying and, you know, reminding God she can't afford a new lens and, you know, God, you, the lost coin, the lost sheep, you know, all this stuff. And I'm just silent and I'm holding hands with these strangers and, and then the pastor, then someone says, I just got a word, we're going to find the lens. Oh, man, I'm so not there. <laughs> yeah, whatever, a word. And then the pastor says, okay, God has spoken, you know, and then he thanks God that they're going to find the lens. Amen. You know, squeeze the hands, done. <laughs> now, and then the next morning, oh, we get up, hey, let's go look for the lens. Okay, well, let's see what, you know, see what happens. So we go out. We're not out there 10 minutes. And mind you, like, it's between rain and snow. It's been cloudy all morning. Then the sun comes out for like five minutes. The, you know how it is in February? There's five minutes. Good luck. I hope you're outside. The sun comes out, and then uh, someone says, I found it. It's right there. The, the sun caught it. He brings it in. They do this thing again, holding hands, thanking Jesus. And, and I, and I kind of wept, actually. And I kind of apparently still do, actually. <laughs> and here's the, the point isn't that they found it. That wasn't the point to me. What so moved me was the peace of the, of the leader. who's like, we've given it to God. All will be well. Man, I want to be that person. For you, I don't think I am. I want you to be that person for me. I don't think you are either sometimes. <laughs> but we can be. How? Ask. Give thanks. Rejoice. Change your homepage. All is good. Meet us, Father, as we respond. Thank you that you called us to be people of peace. And that in spite of our shortcomings and failures, you'll teach us. Thank you for your patience. In Christ's name we pray, amen.